words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I assume you have wondered, as I have wondered, why why Christians are so easily led astray by con artists. Everywhere you turn, there are smooth-talking religious hucksters who are getting rich while leading multitudes of people away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are people so gullible? Why are they so easily led astray? Well, I believe our text gives us a hint. Although our text is uh, in verses 6 through 10, I want to peek back two verses to verses 4 and 5 where Paul describes the character of those who try to lead people away from Christ by teaching a false gospel. So he says, verses 4 and 5, describing these people, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has a healthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This passage, Paul's saying, is um, that these people at bottom are not motivated by a sincere love for Christ, but in their hearts they imagine that godliness is a means for personal gain. Maybe they're looking to feed their egos. Maybe they are looking to have a sense of self-importance as they lead people astray from Christ. Maybe they're looking to pad their bank statement on the backs of others. Regardless, uh, they are typically treating the pursuit of godliness as a means of personal gain. These kinds of leaders find followers, and they find them rather easily, it would seem, because there are many who only see the pursuit of godliness as a means to personal gain themselves. These leaders and their followers are both treating the pursuit of godliness as a means of gain. In other words, the followers get played for a fool because they are so busy trying to play God for a fool. Uh, They are so busy trying to make sure that they get theirs that they don't realize that they themselves are being taken advantage of. In essence, uh, or I'm sorry, the essence of this false Christianity says, Jesus, I'll do this for you if you will do something for me. It's easy to point out or point to the health and wealth gospel, the name it, claim it, uh, preachers, um, and, and demonstrate that they are hucksters, but there are those in more conservative churches who also treat godliness as a means to personal gain. There are those who only come to church because they want to get eternal life. There are others who come to church only to keep themselves grounded or to give themselves a a sense of... Still others seek after a form of godliness for the sake of their reputation. In other words, there are lots of people who pursue a form of godliness for many different reasons, but at bottom... Their chief motivation is that that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain.
But godliness should never be treated as a means of gain. Godliness is the gain. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Although godliness is not a means of gain, there is, a, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. In other words, true godliness is not a means to something else that's more valuable Godliness is supremely valuable in and of itself. And it's not merely gain. It is great gain. Why is true godliness itself great gain? Paul defined the mystery of godliness earlier in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. He says, Great indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up. Instead of asking, what is the the mystery of godliness? From uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it seems that we should ask, who? It's the mystery of godliness. Godly living can never be disconnected from Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, many uh, professing Christians get it all twisted up and they turn Christianity upside down. They think that if they are sufficiently religious or sufficiently godly, then then they will... For them, Christianity is a religion or a faith, or a moral philosophy. But Christianity is a person. Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ. In basic Christianity, uh, that great little book that John Stott wrote, I, I read it as a brand new Christian. In that book he said, the person and work of Christ are the foundation rock upon which the Christian religion is built. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There's practically nothing left. James Boyce says Christ is the center of Christianity. Everything else is circumference. Everything else is uh, peripheral. Christ is the center. For the true Christian, Jesus Christ is the true treasure of the Christian's heart. For the true Christian, Jesus Christ is the great pearl of great price. For the true Christian, Jesus is so much more than a belief system or a free pass into heaven. For the true Christian, Jesus Christ is the ultimate delight in his life. He is our chief um, delight. He is our chief joy. Everything else takes second place. So that's why Paul adds the qualification. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If Christ alone is the mystery of godliness, then what else could we need in order to possess godliness? In other words, for the true Christian, he or she is content with Christ. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Paul's saying here in verse 6 is that if a person has Jesus Christ, they have everything they need. Uh, Spurgeon tells the story of a poor woman who for breakfast only had a piece of bread and a cup of water. And how she cried in delight. What? Christ? And all this? When you have Christ, He is enough. How easily would it have been for this woman to turn up her nose at such a meal? Many of us do when we have so much more spread before us. Christian contentment is very different from what is normally considered contentment. In the dictionary, contentment is defined as being satisfied, but it assumes that the circumstances are satisfactory. But what about when a person's circumstances are unsatisfactory? Can that person have contentment? Christian contentment says that you can experience contentment regardless of your circumstances, as long as you have Christ. Christian contentment starts with Jesus Christ. In fact, without Jesus Christ, you cannot have Christian contentment. Frankly, without Jesus, I don't see how you can experience any real contentment at all in life. If you are without Jesus Christ, you are without the... Uh, and the righteousness of Christ that you need in order to be able to stand in God's presence. Without Jesus Christ, you are headed to hell forever. With that reality, I'd think that contentment would be quite impossible. Knowing that your future without Jesus Christ will end in an eternity of separation and damnation from God. Additionally, our hearts are sinful. Not only is contentment elusive for those without Christ, but Christians um, struggle uh, to be content as well. We take our eyes off of Christ and place them on ourselves or on our circumstances so easily. From my parents and my mother-in-law for Christmas, I I received a total of $150 for Christmas from them. Um, I was pretty happy about that, but I must admit that it is burning a hole in my pocket. Uh, You know, I don't want to squander it. I want the perfect thing that I can buy. And I've been so wrapped up in that, and I've been tempted just to to buy something and, um, and be done with it. And so I did buy something yesterday. I spent the whole $150, and now I'm second guessing myself. Contentment. Is so difficult, so easily led astray. Charles Swindoll wrote a, uh, read a poem uh, in one of his sermons that he had received from a teacher. The poem went like this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall... 
but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Discontent is a thief. It will rob you of rejoicing in all God's faithfulness to you. It is foolish to wallow in discontent if you are a child of God. Paul gives us three reasons why it's foolish to wallow in discontent. The first one we see in verse 7. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So the first reason is that we cannot take anything out of the world with us when we die. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 15 as we were as I preached through Ecclesiastes um, Solomon said as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You've likely heard of the story of the multimillionaire who had died and everybody was anxious to to get a glimpse of his will, to see how much he had left behind. And as they were discussing it at the funeral, the preacher overheard their gossipy whispers and he exclaimed, He left behind everything! He took nothing with him. He could not take anything with him. Psalm 49, verse 17 speaks of this rich man, speaks of any rich man when it says, when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. And so Paul says, it's foolish to pine away for these things that won't last. The second reason it is foolish to wallow in discontent is that we have everything we need if we're a child of God. Look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Remember how Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth, Are you uh, not of more value than they? And then Jesus continues, and then he concludes, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus says that our heavenly Father knows what we need. And that he will supply what we need. You believe that? That he will supply your needs? You know, our problem oftentimes is that we put um, our luxuries 
as one, in the category of our needs. Uh, typically, we not only have enough, we have more than enough. We don't need luxuries. We only need necessities. If godliness with contentment leads to great gain, it's also true that an active discontentment leads to disaster. And that's the third reason not to wallow in discontent. Look at verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. In verse 9, the desire to, to be rich, Paul says, leads to the temptation to make unwise choices in the pursuit of more money. This applies not only to the filthy greedy. You know, we can think of someone who is just greedy beyond all measure, who only lives for money, and we can point at them and forget that we can also, or also should be pointing to ourselves. Uh, I have seen over and over where a couple uh, overextends themselves to get a new car that is uh, more reliable uh, than the car they currently have. And invariably, this car that's more reliable is also shinier and more stylish. I've never seen a more reliable car that has rust spots. But then the new car is a lemon, and you break the bank account uh, trying to fix the car. So new debt is incurred, the credit cards are maxed out, the bills can't be paid. And the couple uh, may not plunge into the ruin and destruction that Paul mentions in verse 10. But many tears and arguments typically arise. I typically tell uh, young couples in pre-marriage counseling that there will be those crossroads in your life where one decision might seem like the right decision. And you head down that path, and it ends up being the wrong decision. And the problems multiply, and the bank account is emptied, and the stress level uh, goes up and up and up. So watch out that discontent doesn't lead you down a painful path. I want you to look at verse 10, especially that first phrase, because this phrase is often misunderstood. Uh, In fact, as you read it, you might misread it uh, with your eyes, even though it says something else. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. We usually place a definite article in there. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. If, If it is the chief uh, root of evil in the world. I think pride is probably a more pervasive um, root of evil. Money uh, is only um, one root among many, uh, the Apostle Paul is saying. And this one root, 
This one root among many leads to many different kinds of evil. The love of money is indeed very dangerous. Look at the last sentence of verse 10. It is through this this craving, this love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. Um, I pray for you in the congregation. I haven't prayed, I don't think, publicly that I can remember. But I pray for you. God, give so-and-so as much money as they can possibly stand but help them never to love one penny of it. In my business leads group, I'll often, they ask me to pray before the meals, and sometimes I'll pray that prayer. Lord, bless these businesses. Give them more money than they could stand. And they just love it, and I say, and help them never to love one penny of it. Because the love of money is a root of many types of evils. Let me briefly illustrate what discontentment is. Since we're talking about contentment, I think it's helpful to understand what discontentment is. Before I do, let me ask a series of questions. Is God in control of our lives? Yes, He is. Does God love His children? Yes, He does. Has God promised to bless us in good circumstances and in bad circumstances? Of course He has promised. And He has promised and He will do it. Are we free to try and change and improve our circumstances? We are. Are we free to pursue a raise at work? Sure, we're able to pursue changing our circumstances. And so, if we're here in our circumstances, and it's pretty pleasant and comfortable circumstances, we're free to pursue better circumstances. No problem with that. Or, if we're in bad circumstances, we're free free to try and get ourselves out of those bad circumstances, improve our circumstances. But we get into trouble when we have the attitude, or as Paul says, the craving that says, I must, um, I'm, I must get here, or I must get out of this situation. And when that desire to do that becomes a must. It becomes an idol. And it becomes dangerous. God is in control. Therefore, we must be willing to find contentment, oftentimes through subtraction. What I mean is, our circumstances are here, and, and, and our desires are here, and it's a must, we must, have this new car, we must have this different set of circumstances. The difference between here and here is discontentment. Or if we've got bad circumstances and we want more pleasant circumstances and, and we say, I must, my circumstances must change. The, the difference between here and here is discontentment. So, what you must be willing to do, knowing that God loves you, knowing that God is fully in control of all things, that He has promised to bless you, oftentimes what we must do, if, we're, if, we're, if our circumstances are here, we're here because God's in control. We want this, well, the godly thing to do might be, by way of subtraction, 
to bring our desires down to meet where our circumstances are, knowing that God's in control. Likewise, if we're in a difficult circumstances, and there are some of you who wake up with, with excruciating pain every day, there are others of you who miss your spouse who has died. There are others of you that just have difficulty day in and day out. And you may not be able to change those circumstances. And so, by subtraction, bringing down your desires where God has placed you, when, when you're able to do that, contentment is achieved. I want to give you just a little bit of encouragement because it's difficult. Forgoing the new car, buying a clunker that'll get you where you need to be uh, that looks like it has already been through the junkyard uh, before you bought it, it's difficult. Um, we live in a current, or, or live in a, in, a, um, in a culture that is permeated by discontent. You know, the neighbors have the new car, the bigger house, whatever. To be willing to find godly contentment through subtraction will cause you and your family to swim against the current. So here's a little encouragement from the Scriptures. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. The Lord has His eye upon you. Or Philippians 4.19. We could actually include several verses from Philippians 4. But verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't say He's going to give you out of Christ's riches a little what you need. He's going to give you according to the riches of Christ Jesus everything you need. Everything you, you need might not be everything you desire. But you can take it to the bank. God has promised right here in verse 19, He will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the key as I conclude. Are you content in Jesus Christ? Is He your delight? Is He your joy? Is He your treasure? Is He your crown? When you are pursuing Jesus because you know that He loves you so much, obedience becomes easier. Trust becomes your delight. Self-denial even can become your joy. And of course, Jesus loves us so much that He continues to love us. Love Him as He deserves to be loved. He forgives us even when we start loving ourselves more than, he love, than we love Him. He is so gracious. He is so good. He is worthy of our trust even when our circumstances in our estimation, stink. You can trust Him. Let's pray together. Father, help us to learn, not just by way of confession, but in our uh, lives on a practical day-to-day -day basis,
that godliness with contentment is great gain. Because godliness with contentment centers our contentment on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.